Welcome to the Close Set Podcast. My name is Themistoclus Alexis. On today's show, we will be revisiting the life, legacy, and a selection of works of the influential filmmaker Melvin Van Peebles. to the program. Uh, I know I've been away for a while, as per, as per usual, becoming a bit of a habit with me. It's been a, a very hectic month. As per usual, I'm juggling the three gigs, and uh, I'm in the process of moving. I'm currently recording uh, this show surrounded by boxes and luggage and basically all my worldly possessions, so it's been still, still, still a pretty messy state of affairs over here. But, um, but in any case, uh, I do want to say before uh, I get into everything, that I am going to try to keep more of a regular schedule. I know I've it's only taken me, like, what, nine months? I actually didn't have a very good idea of what the workload of the show would be like, just with all the show preparation and watching the films and getting everything ready and recording and editing, since I'm doing it all myself. Uh, but now that I've been at it for a while and I have a bit of a better handle on uh, just what I need to do for each episode and uh, the kind of work rate I can keep up uh, from now on, I am going to try to put out a show, the plan is to put out a show on the first Thursday of every month. That will keep a regular schedule, and the six of you listening will know when to expect a new show from me, and uh, I think that'll be uh, that'll be better, especially if I, you know, if you want to grow your audience, it's probably, it's probably advisable to stay consistent. Uh, and speaking of audiences, uh, I want to thank every one of you for uh, listening and supporting the show. We are coming off a record month in terms of downloads. Uh, not that the show has a huge audience or that, you know, I'm a big deal or anything like that. But yeah, it's been a very good month for downloads for the show. Thank you very much for supporting. And as per usual, we've had uh, listeners from all over. Vietnam, Brazil, Iran, Portugal, Denmark, the Czech Republic. Fuck yeah! Thank you very much. It's always very nice to see people from all over uh, showing up to support the show and keep it coming. And as per usual, you can find the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts, really. And please uh, give us a like, subscribe, leave comments, ratings, reviews, uh, whatever uh, little bit you can do to uh, help the show rank a little better and get some more ears on it. Uh, Every little bit helps and is greatly appreciated. And also, before we get into today's episode, uh, I want to give my friend Laurent Morin his props. He is the uh, composer and performer of the theme music that you hear at the top of every every episode. Very big thank you and a very special shout-out to him. It's been a while since I've given him his due. And also, I would like to make a correction because uh, I misspoke on our previous episode. We covered Michelangelo Antonioni and a handful of films that he made in the early 60s. We mentioned a film of his called Le Amiche, which came out in the mid-50s in our previous episode, and I opened by saying that it followed a group of working-class people. What I should have said was that it was a group of middle-class people. So I just wanted to make that little amendment before we get down to it. And uh, now that all that shite is out of the way, and that I flushed my antipsychotics and had copious amounts of coffee and gotten some liquor in me, let us boogie. So, like I said, today we are going to be covering Melvin Van Peebles, a man of many talents, a renaissance man, certainly, and a very well-traveled man. We're going to talk more about that in a bit. 
a very, very influential filmmaker, paved the way for black filmmakers, not just in Hollywood, but also uh, black independent filmmakers, was an actor, writer, a playwright, had a lot of success on Broadway as well, and was a songwriter, a musician, and an autodidact in pretty much every one of his creative pursuits, which is especially impressive. And he is one of several filmmakers, along with Ossie Davis and Gordon Parks, who are credited with sort of breaking the color barrier for black directors in Hollywood. And we're going to be covering uh, a few of his films, his most well-known and important works. Uh, the films we're going to be looking at are, in order, The Story of a Three-Day Pass, Watermelon Man, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, and Don't Play as Cheap. But of course, as per usual, as we do every episode, we are going to start at the very beginning. Now, Melvin Van Peebles was born on August 21st, 1932 in Chicago and grew up on the south side. His father was a tailor, and Van Peebles spent his youth in Phoenix, Illinois, which is basically just a, a southern suburb, if you will, of Chicago. Well, when I was a kid, um, um, back in Chicago on the south side, the I would go to a place called the NRA. That was the name of the theater. The, the, and NRA the, was for the National Rat Alley. Because you'd be sitting in there, and these big rats, rats would run across your your feet in in the theater, and um, my my earliest memories were Saturday going to see triple features with two comedies and the newsreel, and just stepping into this world. The world was always at first confused me. Um, when it came to the the racial aspects of the world, and then embarrassed me no end, and um, and then dance, and you could learn a lot of things from film, you know, how to things your parents would never tell you about, how to sword fight or how to kiss, you know, things really important things in life. And he went to college at West Virginia State College initially, and then transferred to Ohio Wesleyan University, and he majored in English literature. And he graduated in 1953, and upon graduating, he joined the Air Force, became a navigator of a B-47 bomber, had a three-year stint in the Air Force, and it was while he was in the service that he married his first and I believe only wife, a photographer and actress named Maria Marks. Now, there's some conflicting reports on where the couple met and what Maria Marks's background was. A lot of sources say that she was German, and several others say that the two of them met in Mexico, when in fact they met in the United States, and Maria Marx may have been of German descent, I'm not sure, it's certainly possible with a last name like Marx, but Melvin Van Peebles ended up setting the record straight in 1995 in an interview with Charlie Rose. No, German. no, she's from Virginia. From Virginia? From Virginia, yeah. And she went to school um, to Ohio Wesleyan, where I went to college. She yeah. went to Ohio Wesleyan, the same school. And However, she went after I, I was, and I was flying, I used to be in the Air Force, you know, in Strategic yeah. Air Command, and someone gave her my um, uh, my address when she was coming to San Francisco, where I was uh, I was flying in yeah. Sacramento at the time, and we met. And that's yeah. how we met. And so after he was discharged, Van Peebles uh, couldn't get work with a commercial airline as a pilot. Keep in mind, this is uh, before the civil rights movement and race relations in the United States are uh, not ideal, to say the least. And so he and Maria Marx moved to Mexico City. And he worked there as a portrait painter, and it was while they were in Mexico that Melvin's son Mario Van Peebles was born. Mario Van Peebles followed in his father's footsteps. Uh, the two of them collaborated many times over the course of their careers, and we're going to be talking about him uh, a fair bit over the course of today's show. 
And so soon after, the family moved back to the United States. They settled in San Francisco. And while they were there, Melvin worked in the post office. He worked as a cable car operator. I lived in San Francisco, and I fell in love um, with, well, I'd always been in love, actually, with cinema. And someone, I wrote a book, and someone got on my cable car. I used to be a gripman, you know, the big guy that pulled the, the, the cable cars. Well, and someone a, said, hmm? The yeah. brake kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, up and it's a big metal piece and so forth. And the, the guy said, you know, your book is just like a movie. I said, shit, I'll go into movies. And it was in San Francisco that he started making his first films. He made several shorts in San Francisco, two of them to be exact. The first of which was called Three Pickup Men for Herrick which is a short film, it's about eight, nine minutes long, and it follows a group of day laborers who are vying for, for a job. And the other was called Sunlight, which starred Melvin himself, and it's about a man who commits a petty crime to earn money so he can settle down with the woman that he loves. And it was also in San, while in San Francisco that he wrote his first book called The Big Heart. This was in 1957, and the book was inspired by his experience working as a cable car operator. And, like I said at the beginning of the show, Van Peebles himself was an autodidact. He didn't go to film school, he wasn't classically trained in pretty much in any of his pursuits, really. He just learned how to do them by doing them, essentially. And he admitted himself that he knew nothing of the technical aspects of filmmaking, not that he ever let that get in the way of what he wanted to accomplish. The first day I finally got what was the, the rushes, and I got under your bed, because we didn't have any, any curtains. But the wall was white, and under your crib... Um, there was the little white space, and I got down like this, and I got this um, this little projector, and I projected the film on the wall, under the bed, and I expected to see because I didn't know about sixteen millimeter and twenty four millimeter. I mean, twenty four frames a second. I mean, um, as opposed to sixteen frames per second as the old films. And I looked at the film, and I would say, I remember, I never will forget it. Oh, shit. I got him now. Because it looked just like a regular film. I never expected that to look like, look like a regular film. So, it looked like a regular film. It didn't, wasn't jerky off. Hmm? I said, what's going on here? Right then, I said, all right. Watch out, world, here I come. And after making these short films in the late 50s, he wanted to commit to being a filmmaker. And so he tried taking his talents to Hollywood. And uh, let's just say that the results of that visit were uh, disappointing. When I made my first short films, I went to Hollywood. And I said I'd like to be a film director. Well, they offered me a job of an elevator operator. Man, I insisted I really wanted to be involved in production. So I did finally get an offer to be a dancer. This wasn't exactly what I had in mind, so I moved to Europe. And keep in mind, at this time, this is in the late 50s, just the, the idea of a black man working in Hollywood as a director was unheard of at this time. Opportunities were very limited, even for black actors. I mean... Unless you were Sidney Poitier, Harry Belafonte, Lena Horne, and maybe a couple others, even for black actors, parts were usually re limited to playing 
porters, butlers, mammies, you know, some variation of the help, essentially. And so after being shut out by Hollywood, Melvin ended up going to Europe, where he could live a little more freely. And he first settled in the Netherlands, and he studied astronomy at the University of Amsterdam. He got involved in the theater as an actor. He worked at the Dutch National Theater there. Uh, but unfortunately, while he was in the Netherlands, his marriage to Maria Marx uh, went south. The couple split, and Maria and their children went back to the United States. Melvin Van Peebles, however, didn't go back to the States. He ended up moving to France, settled in Paris, and he had, he had moved to Paris in hopes that he could get back to making films. And while he was there, he found out that he could obtain a, a director's card if he was a published author. And so he learned the language, learned how to speak French, wrote and published a handful of novels, worked as a crime reporter as well, which I believe helped him get the novels published. And so that made him eligible for a director's card and to obtain grants and such to begin making films in France. He made a short film, his third. This one was called Les 500 Balles, The 500 Francs. And this came out in the early 60s, and it follows a little boy who tries to fish a 500-franc note out of a sewer. And then finally, in 1967, he was around 35 years old at this time, he finally releases his first feature film. And it's called The Story of a Three-Day Pass. And it's based on his novel La Permission, which had been published in the same year, I believe. And so this film stars Harry Baird as Turner, who is a black American soldier. He's stationed in France. And he's in line for a promotion, and he's given a three-day pass, you know, a three-day vacation, essentially, by his casually racist commanding officer. And so Turner heads to Paris, he wanders around for a little bit, and on his first night there, he meets a young white woman named Miriam, who's played by Nicole Berger. And we essentially just follow the two of them over the course of Turner's three-day pass, and they engage in a brief affair, they hit it off. And ultimately, some fellow soldiers of Turner's spot them on a beach together. They rat him out to his commanding officer, and it ends up not only costing him his promotion, but he also gets punished and is confined to the barracks because of it. That is the gist of the film, and it's essentially... There's two sides to this film. The first, of course, being the love story part of it. And it's basically a brief encounter. The two meet, they hit it off, they have a three-day fling. And even though later on in the film we see the two of them declaring their love for each other... Once Turner's three-day pass ends, the two of them part ways, he goes back to the barracks, she goes back to her life. She soon forgets about him. I'm sure she'll come. Don't count your chickens before they're hatched, baby. She ain't coming. I hope she comes. And the other half of the film, of course, has a lot of commentary on race and interracial relationships. And, like I said, Melvin Van Peebles had been living in France, where he could live a little more freely, and James Baldwin, the celebrated writer who had written Go Tell It on the Mountain and Notes of a Native Son, If Beale Street Could Talk, he himself had also moved to Paris, I believe it was in the late 40s, uh, basically for the same reason. That said, the film does explore certain contradictions or taboos regarding race, not just in France, but in general for that time. Because we follow Turner, and yes, while he's in France, while he's in Paris on this, this three-day pass of his, he can move somewhat freely and, you know, without being hassled. However, things change for him a little bit once he and Miriam hook up and they start spending the weekend together. And, of course, there's that especially telling scene when the two of them go to a hotel, they go to book a room, and the clerk is polite, but he is also visibly taken aback at seeing uh, an interracial couple. And then, of course, we have Turner's fellow soldiers, who were not French, fine, 
but they're they are also visibly kind of irked or disturbed even by seeing him with a white woman. So you know, I guess the 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 overarching comment is like you know, do what you want, but you know, keep your hands off our women. I'd like to give you a lift back to the base in the car with us. No thanks, I got my own car here. Anyway, I don't have to be back until Monday morning. Duty Mondays now? Yep, every Monday. Captain has just made Turner temporary assistant orderly. Hey, <laughs> hey congratulations. <laughs> Mr. Lucky here. He's been free since Friday. Captain gave him a three-day pass, too. <laughs> I've just been using my pass to get some good, clean, lazy living in. That is, till you guys came home. Oh, hey, let's go, fellas. Never disturb a man in his rest. Yeah. My daddy told me that. Yeah, anything else to do in this one-horse place but rest. Takes a nice thing. <laughs> You guys, this is a friend, Miriam. Miriam, uh, these are some of the guys from the base. Hello. Je suis heureuse. I am pleased to meet you. It is a beautiful day today. Hmm? Vous voulez que nous allions prendre une tasse de café? Hein? On va prendre une tasse de café? We gotta be getting along. But perhaps more than anything else, we see Turner growing more and more frustrated with people seeing him as a black man as opposed to just a man. Attention, attention, silence, silence, please. Je vais jouer une chanson, une chanson. Señorita Ojos Grandes y Señor Negrito. And Melvin Van Peebles himself had talked about this in interviews about the film when it came out. That that was part of what he wanted to demonstrate with the film. Well, it's revolutionary. At least it's revolutionary while white folks, because now you're used to seeing a black cat as a human being. It's a black cat who's a human being. I mean, he's not there working out of their bag in any way. Um, he's just alive. He's just trying to trying to make the best way he can. And also, both characters kind of have their fantasies about their brief relationship, their short-lived relationship, and about each other we see Turner has this dream or this this vision, if you will, of being the king of his own castle. And then we have uh, Miriam Nicole Berger's character who kind of fantasizes about him saving her from this this tribe of black men. <laughs> and you can, you can make of that what you will. <laughs> Let's talk about the cast quickly. Harold Baird, like we said, plays Turner. And Harold Baird was uh, originally from Guyana, but he settled in the UK in his late teens, I believe, and uh, had a very prolific career, was in over three dozen films, was in The Mark in the early 60s, he was in The Whispers with Edith Evans, uh, and he was also in The Italian Job, the original with Michael Caine. Nicole Berger, like we said, plays Miriam, and she worked with a lot of great directors. She worked with Jean-Luc Godard, Jules Dassin, uh, she also worked with François Truffaut in uh, the great film Tiré sur le pianiste, Shoot the Piano Player with uh, Charles Aznavour, that was in 1960. Tu sais, soudain je me sens en bonne santé. Bonne santé? Oui. En bonne santé. Je crois que jamais plus je ne serai malade. Sauf avec toi.
Do you want to be my girl? Are you my girl then? Are you cold? No. I, I could. No. Shh. Je veux garder cet instinct pour toujours. Unfortunately, The Story of a Three-Day Pass was her last film. In 1967, in April of 67 to be exact, the same year the film came out, she died in a car crash uh, at the age of 32. And lastly, Hal Brav plays the racist captain, Turner's racist commanding officer. And the film was shot for about $200,000 in just, uh, just over a month. I think the shoot took 36 days altogether. And at this time, in 1967, the French New Wave... Uh, was basically all the rage. It was a style of filmmaking that had come to prominence sort of in the late 50s and through the 60s, and directors like Truffaut, Godard, and Agnès Varda, and uh, Claude Chabrol were at the forefront of it. And aesthetically and stylistically, the film is very, very similar to the films of that era. I mean, it's shot kind of documentary style, and the jump cuts, which were a staple of, uh, of a lot of French New Wave films. And Melvin Van Peebles did the music for, for the film as well, which he would do for just about all his films. And like I said, he did not know how to read or write music, taught himself how to write songs and make music. And it's a wonderful score. It's kind of jazzy and groovy, especially early on. And then there's some 60s pop sprinkled in, especially during that nightclub sequence where Turner and uh, Miriam first meet. And Melvin Van Peebles later went on to put out his own albums from the late 60s onwards. And talk about a, a sort of <laughs> a poetic twist of fate. The film actually brought Melvin Van Peebles back to San Francisco he basically came back as uh, as a, as a foreign director you know he'd been heralded as this sort of french auteur type and the film ended up winning an award at the san francisco international film festival and so after he couldn't find any opportunities as a director in the united states he comes back to the states as an award winning french import filmmaker and not just that he comes back to the city that he had sued for discrimination a decade prior but that coils quite a stir. People didn't know I was American, let alone black. And so um, that became the shame of Hollywood because up to that time, the Hollywood establishment had never had a an African-American director. And um, that was really the start of the whole thing. And also keep in mind, this was in 1967, 1968. So by that time, by then, of course, Melvin had been living in Europe for many, many years, but by that time, of course, the, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act had both been passed in the United States. This was in 1963 and 1964. So some progress had been made on the racial front in the United States by the time Melvin came back, at least in terms of public policy. It was a step in the right direction, at the very least. And so in 1968, not long after the story of A Three-Day Pass came out, uh, Melvin put out his first album called Brewer Soul, and he had a deal with uh, A&M Records, and it's, the vocals are kind of done in a, in a spoken word style, which uh, a lot of people have since come to, to anoint a kind of forebear or a prototype for rap music, and the instrumentation is uh, kind of jazzy, it's funky, and uh, Melvin wrote and produced the entire album himself. And so the success of A Story of a Three-Day Pass essentially did for Melvin what he had intended to do about a decade prior, it took him to Hollywood, and it got his foot in the door as a Hollywood director. 
any black cat that has to start off at the bottom. That's what we're fighting about, so they don't have to. I mean, that's what the whole thing is about. Um, after that, when I did get out, um, I went to the executive bit. That is, um, I mean, to the man's executive bit, the thing he never tells us about. Um, I cheated and pimped and pushed and lied and stole and everything until I could get him out of the sand. And then um, now I've come back here hoping that I can use what Pierre gave me to beat Dave over the head with to let it open up for some of our brothers and sisters. Because it's a very important reason. You see, the man has backed the the black writer into a cultural bag. He will only allow him to write about the black problem. The next film I'm going to make it be none about white folks because I don't want the directors to be in that same bag. That is, a cat now can say, geez, that's a great film, but it's great because it's about black people and you black. No, it's great because I know my business. You understand what I mean? Now I make a film about white folks, then they'll see that it's just great, period. And it was in 1970 that he put out his first and only studio film. And that film was Watermelon Man. And he put this film out for Columbia. It's a satire. And before we get into the film and what it's about and all that, uh, I just want to mention that it's worth noting it's kind of a rarity for Melvin Van Peebles for a few reasons. The first being that he didn't write the script himself. The, the script was actually written by a guy named Herman Rauker, who was actually still around. He's in his 90s. So for, that's an anomaly in his body of work, for one thing. The other rarity is that it's a studio film. Like I said, it's the only one he made over the course of his career. And third... Melvin Van Peebles was actually hired to direct this film, so it wasn't exactly his baby, or at least not in the same way that his other films were. And so Watermelon Man stars Godfrey Cambridge as Jeff Gerber, who's a bigoted and casually racist white insurance salesman. He lives in a white suburban neighborhood, you know, your standard middle-class, upper-middle-class uh, white suburban type, who wakes up one night to find out that he's become black. Oh my God! Oh my good God! Oh, shut up! There is no God! He don't give a damn! You, you look like a Negro! I know what I look like! Shut up! I mean a dark one! I mean, I mean, if I didn't know you, if, if Will I Will you shut up, Althea? Oh, oh, should I hide the money? Oh, you are hilarious. Uh, how, how, how do you know you're you? That's the dumbest thing you've ever said! Of course I know it's me! I can tell from my bridge work! Look, see? Huh? Huh? That's the contrast. And your hair. My hair's always been naturally curly. What, what about your birthmarks? I can't find them anymore. At first, he goes into a complete panic. He tries desperately to, to change his skin color back at first. We see him, you know, he, he jumps in the shower and spends hours in there, you know, trying literally to wash the black off him. He bathes in milk like he's Cleopatra. You got enough milk? Yeah. You think you're getting any whiter? No, but my skin is getting lovely and soft. You know, you've been in there three hours. You're going to marinate. Isn't it cold? Yeah, a little. Want me to warm it up a little? You know I hate warm milk. He even ends up consulting his bumbling, sort of an inept doctor for some kind of cure or explanation for this, this sudden change in skin color, why he suddenly has melanin in his skin. Jeff, it's no longer a joke. It has nothing to do with allergies, blood counts, or electrocardiograms. And it has nothing to do with soy sauce. We've run 18 different tests on soy sauce, and the opinion is that soy sauce is more apt to make you oriental than Negro. Say like that. That's logical. And so, during all that, while he sort of tries desperately to revert back to his old skin color, we see Jeff starting to get hassled as a black man. His employer treats him a little differently. 
He gets harassed by people in the street. He gets in trouble with the cops. What did this man do? Oh, they stick together, they do. What did he do? He stole something. What did I steal? Who saw me steal something? Anybody see this man steal anything? A purse, a wallet. How about a brand new color TV set? You know this man. This man's a regular passenger on my bus. He was running for the bus. Since when is there a law against running for the bus? He gets turned away from a social club that he's been to before as a white man. His neighbors start harassing him. They start calling him and telling him to move out of the neighborhood and at all hours of the night to the point where the neighbors even end up gathering and pooling their money together so they can buy his house. And even his marriage goes south. We see his wife Althea, who is played by the greatest Tell Parsons. And at the beginning of the film, she fancies herself this sort of, you know, progressive liberal type. But uh, she turns out to be a hypocrite once Jeff becomes a black man. And ultimately, she can't, she can't accept him as a husband after he's turned black. When we got married, I had no idea it was going to be an interracial thing. You never told me. Well, I just got wind of it myself. If I had known what was going to happen, I would have put an escape clause in your marriage contract. If my husband becomes a Negro, all bets are off. How dare you be sarcastic with me? I'm the one who was compromised. Oh, I'm not angry. How could I be angry? I have a $100,000 suntan. Oh, why do you insist on being Negro? I don't insist. I accept it. What would you have me do? Dye my hair and insist I'm white? You know what I'd look like with blonde hair out there? Like a grilled cheese sandwich. Negro humor always escaped me. Well, we're learning a lot about each other, aren't we? Yes, we are. What happened to the flaming liberal I was married? I'm still liberal, but to a point. And that essentially marks the end of their marriage, and ultimately we see Jeff sort of accepting his new his new identity, his new race, essentially. And he ends up on his own. He starts his own business, building his own clientele. And we see him at the end of the film sort of becoming comfortable in his own skin, essentially, you know, in, in every sense of the term. And it's a, it's a really great film. It's a, it's a really, really funny satire. I want to talk about the cast quickly before we, we get into a little more of this. So Godfrey Cambridge plays Jeff. And Godfrey Cambridge was a New Yorker. He was a very, very successful comic. Same generation as Dick Gregory and uh, Nipsey Russell. And had a great career as an actor as well. He was in Bye Bye Braverman, the Sidney Lumet film. He was in Cotton Comes to Harlem, which was directed by Ossie Davis. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. He was in Friday Foster as well with Pam Greer in 1975. Uh, unfortunately, his career was cut short. He, he died of a heart attack at a young age. He was 43 years old in 1976. We have uh, Estelle Parsons as well, who we mentioned before. She's still around. She's in her 90s. Estelle Parsons probably best known for Bonnie and Clyde, which she won an Oscar for in 1967. She won Best Supporting Actress. She plays Althea, Jeff's wife in the film, and she is great as per usual. We have Howard Kane, who plays Jeff's boss, Mr. Townsend, another prolific actor, did a lot of work in television, was in Hogan's Heroes, and he was also in the Stanley Kramer film Judgment at Nuremberg, which came out in 1961 and has an all-star cast. Uh, Derville Martin is in this film as well. He plays the bus driver. He drives the bus that Jeff takes every morning into town for work. Derville Martin was another prolific actor, was in uh, Rosemary's Baby, the Roman Polanski film. He was in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which, called back to a story of a three-day pass, was another film that dealt with interracial relationships and actually came out the same year as a story of a three-day pass, but I digress. And Derville Martin also directed and co-starred uh, the film Dolomite, which is uh, regarded as a blaxploitation classic. We're going to talk more about the blaxploitation era shortly. Uh, but unfortunately, like Godfrey Cambridge, he also died of a heart attack in his 40s. This was in the mid-80s. I think in 1985 uh, he passed away. And lastly, we have Mantan Moreland, 
who was born in the early 20th century, I believe in 1908, and he was around for the days of minstrel shows. So his career goes that far back, and he plays the man who works the counter at the diner that Jeff Gerber frequents every morning, and we're going to talk a little bit more about his uh, his performance in that later. Uh, Mantan Moreland, like I said, was introduced to minstrel shows at a very young age, uh, later made his way to vaudeville and Broadway, and had a very prolific career as a film actor as well. And the great thing about this film, what makes it a great satire, is all the different looks it gives you. So let me explain what I mean by that. Firstly, we have Jeff, Godfrey Cambridge's character, the lead, who goes from being a casually racist white man to a self-loathing black man. <laughs> and finally, he ends up accepting himself and being comfortable in his own skin. We have Althea, his wife, who, you know, fancies herself a progressive liberal, uh, but she turns out to be full of shit, of course, after Jeff turns into a black man. We have Jeff's employer, Mr. Townsend, who treats him differently after he becomes a black man, tells him to shift his focus to black customers, that it's an untapped market, and this, that, and the third. And even Mantan Moreland's character, the man who works the counter at the diner, he shows up in two different scenes. In the first scene, we see him with Jeff as a white man, and he's totally servile. Morning, Mr. Gerber. Ah, morning, Joe. How goes it? Oh, okay. Any rioting in the neighborhood last night? Uh, I don't see any broken windows. Uh, <laughs> what's the matter? This place ain't good enough to, to loot. The usual, Mr. Garber. Oh, yes, uh, but make mine a double. I'm feeling a bit under par this morning. Hmm? Oh, <laughs> one double Polynesian health juice. Coming up. And then when Jeff becomes a black man, he changes his tune completely, and he's much more sort of, you know. There's a certain familiarity with Jeff, you know, as, as if he's talking to one of his own now, and his, his demeanor and his, his way of speaking even changes completely. Hey, Jeff, you suddenly set a good example. A good job like you got. What's dragging you, brother? I'm wondering what's uh, in this health drink. Oh, that. Orange juice? Papaya's juice, lime juice, and soy sauce. <laughs> soy sauce? What the hell are you putting in soy sauce for? Well, we was all out of Worcestershire sauce. What? Cool it, Jeff. That's why they don't want us in these places now. Us? <laughs> I'll sue the entire NAACP. Look at my skin. I don't have to look at your skin. I can look at my own. And we also have a co-worker of Jeff's who becomes visibly attracted to him when he turns black. And then the two of them end up having sex and we see her objectify him. Then why are you leaving? Did I hurt you? Oh my God, if I hurt you. You're such a great bang. But you're a bigot, Erica. A big, blonde bigot. So thank you. But no, thank you. You black bastard. You're really getting to it. My goodness, in no time at all, you'll qualify for American citizenship. Get out of here, you... You nigger! Uh, by Jove, she's got it. I really think she's got it. <laughs> hey, and don't worry about running out of new words to call me, Erica. Because in a few years, you'll know them all. And so I, I love how the film sort of tackles and takes the piss out of all these little facets surrounding race and the whole discussion around it. And I love that it, it's an honest discussion about race, but it's done with humor. And it takes the piss out of stereotypes, out of prejudice and hypocrisy, and it, it kind of strips them of their power by laughing at them. 
And this was something we used to see a lot of back in the 70s, especially with even on Saturday Night Live, you know, that famous sketch between Richard Pryor and Chevy Chase, shows like The Jeffersons and All in the Family. But in any case, it's a, it's a wonderful film and really, really funny. And the performances are wonderful. Godfrey Cambridge especially. The gauge of a great performance for me is if I can't imagine it being played any other way. And that is certainly the case with Godfrey Cambridge's performance as Jeff. He is fucking fantastic in this. And I want to get into the production notes because some, some interesting stuff surrounding the making of this film. So Herman Rocker, like I said, wrote the script. He did it on spec. So he wasn't commissioned to write it. He just did it on his own. And he intended it to be a film that basically satirized white liberals primarily. But when Melvin Van Peebles came out to direct, he wanted to change the film and give it a bit more of a broader message and make it, you know, a, sort of widen the film's scope as a, a larger commentary on race. And so Melvin Van Peebles and Rocker sort of clashed over that, and they also disagreed on the ending. Apparently, from what I've read, Herman Rauker wanted it to end with Jeff waking up as a white man, as if this whole thing that he just went through and this transformation into a black man was nothing more than a nightmare. What Melvin Van Peebles wanted to do was to keep Jeff as a black man and have him grow more and more comfortable in his new skin and sort of accept and respect and love himself as a black man. And so as a compromise, according to Melvin Van Peebles, they agreed to shoot the two different endings, but Melvin just ended up you know, putting in his own ending anyway. And also, like I said, Columbia was the studio that put this out. They wanted a black director to helm this film because they had figured that the subject matter was too touchy and that there would be some, some blowback or, you know, the studio would, might catch some flack if it was a white director treating the subject matter. And also keep in mind, by this time, the film came out in 1970. The year before, 1969, Gordon Parks had basically broken the color barrier in Hollywood. He had become the first black man to direct a studio film uh, and that film was The Learning Tree, which was based on a book that he himself had written, and uh, Warner Brothers' Seven Arts had put that film out. And so after this, now that the color barrier has been broken, Columbia is getting behind Watermelon Man with a black director, and it's pushing the film, and apparently they had someone from Jet Magazine visit the set, you know, because now it's the hip thing to do to, to hire black directors. That said, Columbia initially wanted a white actor to play Jeff and to have him perform in blackface for the rest of it, you know, once Jeff turns black. However, Melvin Van Peebles actually convinced the studio to cast a black actor and have him perform in white face instead during those early sequences. And so Godfrey Cambridge ended up getting cast in the part. And Melvin Van Peebles did the music as per usual. The film turned out to be a financial success. And it was in fact so successful that Columbia actually offered Melvin Van Peebles a three-picture deal. However, Melvin Van Peebles being his own man and uh, basically making a life and a career of doing things his own way, he turned down the deal so he could make what became his best-known and his most impactful film. And that film was Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which came out in 1971. Now, this film is especially impactful for several reasons, one of them being that it's credited as the first ever exploitation film. We're going to talk a little more about that later. And uh, Melvin Van Peebles directed, wrote, produced, edited, and starred in this film. And so Melvin plays Sweetback, who earned the name due to his prowess in the bedroom. Oh, you got a sweet... You got a sweet, sweet back. He's a man who grew up in a brothel and works as a performer in a sex show that the brothel puts on. And he gets taken in as a suspect by two white cops for a murder that he didn't commit. And supposedly because the cops need to bring in a suspect sort of as a formality to appease their superiors, and so Sweetback is essentially given to them by his boss Beetle as a fall guy of sorts. 
And so the cops take Sweet back in, and en route to the police station, the cops end up arresting a young Black Panther named Mumu. So the two of them get taken in together, and Mumu exchanges some words with the cops. They end up taking him out of the car. They handcuff him to Sweetback and proceed to throw him a savage, hellacious beating. All right, why don't you step out of here? Get some fresh air. That's better. Look at here. He doesn't look very tough to me. Does he look tough to yeah. you? Huh? Don't look too tough. Don't mark his face. Oh, no, no. Until Sweetback intervenes and ends up treating the two cops to some of their own medicine and ends up putting them in a coma. And so he frees himself in Mumu and Sweetback ends up going on the run. And we see him over the course of the film, especially early on, he turns to various people for help. He goes to Beetle, his old boss. Beetle ends up turning him away, basically out of self-preservation. Yeah, baby. Might be awful cool. Well, what you do affect all the rest of our little employees. We can't have that, because we got a good operation going here. Being public relations for nice little business. And over the course of the film, we see Sweetback go from someone who is basically interested in self-preservation, he's more of an individualist, if you will, to someone who basically comes to rely on his community and changes his attitude. Because at the beginning, after he has beaten the two cops, and he and Mumu have to go on the run, Mumu basically assumes that the two of them are in this together. And Sweetback's having none of it. Thanks, man. Where are we going? Where you get that wee shit? And then we see Sweetback turning to various people for help. He goes to Beetle. Beetle turns him away. He goes to a local preacher. He ends up going to an old flame for help. He basically has to seduce her <laughs> to convince her to get the cuffs off him. Big. No. Ain't you proud to beg? I hope you wouldn't take them off if I did. You know every goddamn thing, don't you? Well, first things first. And after a couple of local gangsters help him get out of Los Angeles, he and Mumu are basically reunited, and the two of them have a run-in with the Hells Angels. And yet again, Sweetback has to screw his way out of trouble, quite literally. And a member of a black biker gang, played by John Amos, uh, comes to their rescue, but he can only take one of them on his motorcycle. And ultimately, Sweetback ends up giving Mumu his place. Look here. I can only take one of you. I won't get ten feet with three people on this bike. Now, they told me to pick up Sweetback. You Sweetback, ain't you? Take him. You know what you're doing, man. He's our future, bruh. Take him. And it's with that act of selflessness that Sweetback's evolution, his transformation, whatever you want to call it, is complete. And then for the rest of the film, we basically see Sweetback trying to elude capture and desperately try to make it to Mexico. And we see him sneaking a ride on a truck. He's running from the cops. He has to make a lot of the trek on foot. Uh, he even has to kill some attack dogs that have been sicked on him. But eventually he makes it across the border. And the film ends with him vowing to return and settle some scores. And so the film basically ends with a little teaser for a sequel, although a sequel was never made. And it's worth noting the title cards that show up at the beginning of the film. The first of them is an old prologue, and it goes, Sire, these lines are not an homage to brutality, 
that the artist has invented, but a hymn from the mouth of reality. And the second title card goes, This film is dedicated to all the brothers and sisters who had enough of the man. And so the film, perhaps above all else, is a sort of blunt and provocative response to systemic oppression, police brutality. You say the witness has given you the whereabouts of the suspect. Too bad the witness has injured himself in a fall. Okay. Right, sir. Proceed. Commissioner says, get the information out of that nigger before we get him to the station. And the opening credits say the film is starring the black community. And Melvin Van Peebles has said on, on several occasions in several interviews that he basically wanted to make a film that was for black people from the hood, to put it in the simplest of terms. And so before we get into the nitty-gritty of the film, because there are a lot of... We could basically do a whole episode on Sweetback alone, but I wanted to talk about some of Melvin's other films as well. So let me just get into the cast quickly before we get down to the nitty-gritty. So like I said, we have Melvin Van Peebles, who plays Sweetback, and he basically fits what's basically a classic archetype, right? Your stoic, laconic, sort of unflappable lead male character. And he doesn't say very much. The number of lines he has in the film total are probably in the single digits. But it's a great performance for him nonetheless. Uh, we have Hubert Scales, who plays Mumu. Simon Chuckster plays Beetle, the man who runs the brothel that Sweetback grew up in and which he later ends up working in. Brother, just keep the faith in Beetle. Old Beetle gonna bring you through. Cause this is just a skirmish. <laughs> you know how that game go, baby. But you keep the faith in me, and you my man. You my favorite man. Can you take it, baby? Together. You know, maintain. They can't bother you along with you. We have John Amos, who plays the biker who comes to Sweet Max and Moon's rescue. John Amos went on to have a great career. This was one of his first films. Uh, he was in the, Ma the Mary Tyler Moore show. He was in Good Times. He was later in Coming to America with Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall. A great career. And we have Mario Van Peebles, Melvin's son, who plays the younger version of Sweetback. And he shows up in what is arguably the most controversial scene in the film. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Um, but let's get into the production notes first. So like I said, Melvin turned down the three-picture deal with Columbia to make this film. So he went the independent route with this. He raised all the money himself and wore very many different hats. Like I said, was a writer, producer, director, editor, and the star of this film. And of course, he did the music like he always did. And the film was shot very quickly. This was, it was shot in about 19 days. A very, very tight shoot. And he used many non-union, non-professional actors and crew members which was fairly common practice with indie filmmakers. John Cassavetes did it, Martin Scorsese did it as well in some of his early films. However, this was a little controversial because Melvin was accused of union busting. And it's a strange thing with the film unions. It's sort of a catch-22. I know I've mentioned this on a show before. Especially if you're a young actor, it's especially difficult because, you know, you can't get work unless you're in the union, but you can't get in the union unless you get work. And a lot of actors end up getting into the union by at first by working non-union jobs and even melvin's son mario has said that melvin got a lot of young actors and young crew members into the union by by hiring them to work on his films and because melvin had basically busted the union with this production he and several crew members were armed during the shoot although according to melvin they didn't catch any shit 
because the film was shot in some rougher parts of LA. I believe they shot a lot of it in Watts. And so, uh, you know, his detractors didn't really have the balls to, to show up and confront them because they wouldn't dare venture into that part of Los Angeles. Uh, and also, being an indie production, not a very big budget, they couldn't afford a stuntman. And so we basically see Melvin doing all his own stunts in the film. And <laughs> speaking of which, even the sex scenes weren't simulated. Uh, so legend has it that most of, if not all, the sex scenes in the film were real. To the point where Melvin Van Peebles has even claimed in several interviews that he got the clap from uh, one of the women he had sex with during the shoot. I suppose it was my fault because the actor said, don't. And I said, I'm the director, I know what I'm doing. Well, three days later when I went to take a leak, I realized I didn't know what I was doing. And not just that, he claimed that he then went to the union for workers' comp, claiming that he had been injured on the job. And they were so surprised that they paid me. And um, so I used the money to buy more film. So, you know, way to game the system. Uh, and speaking of sex scenes, this brings us to the most controversial scene of the film. Like I said, Mario Van Peebles who couldn't have been more than 14 years old when this film was made. He was born in 1957, if memory serves. The film came out in 71, so presumably they shot it in 1970, which would make Mario 13 years old at this time. So Mario plays young Sweetback, and at the beginning of the film, we see young Sweetback is working in the brothel, and he is seduced by one of the women who works there, by one of the, the prostitutes, one of the sex workers. And so we see young Sweetback having sex, and the scene transitions from young Sweetback to adult Sweetback, who's played by his father, Melvin. And so the scene is framed as a sort of passage from boyhood into manhood. Although, given how young Mario was at the time, it's basically... You're basically watching statutory rape on film. And speaking of sex scenes, the sequence where Sweetback and Moomoo have that run-in with the biker gang, again, where Sweetback basically has to screw his way out of trouble, like I said before. That scene got a little testy. Melvin has talked about this in, in interviews before. The sequence with the biker gang was actually shot with, with a real gang. I don't know if they were Hells Angels specifically, but in any case. And so they were paid for the shoot, but when the bikers got a little testy and basically, you know, gave a thinly veiled threat of violence if they weren't allowed to leave, uh, Melvin and the crew kind of had to show them what was what. Um, after they had been paid... For a certain amount of time, the guy said, uh, um, we want to leave. I said, you were paid until the scene was over. And the guy, he said, well, I want to, uh, we want to leave. And he took out a knife and started cleaning his fingernails. And I snapped my fingers, and my guy was standing there with rifles. And so they stayed, and that's how we shot that scene. And, like I said, it's an independent film through and through, both stylistically and just in, in the production and the way it was made. Like I said, it was made for a limited budget. Melvin raised all the money himself. And Melvin, like I said, wore many different hats uh, during the making of this film. And given the working conditions, the little budget, a lot of the, the cast and crew being non-professionals. And also just stylistically, I mean, the handheld camera, the jump cuts. It is an independent film in basically every sense of the term. And the interesting thing about this film, stylistically, is the way Melvin kind of plays with color and sound, and you, you'll see what I mean when you, when you see the film. But interestingly enough, like I said, Melvin was an autodidact. He basically taught himself how to do everything. And he had hired a cinematographer named Bob Maxwell to shoot the film. And the story goes, very early on in the shoot, Melvin and Maxwell had a disagreement. Maxwell kind of questioned his decision, 
about mixing different shades of light. Maxwell thought that, you know, the finished product wouldn't look very good on film. Long story short, they ended up shooting at Melvin's Way, and then after Maxwell saw the filmed product in rushes, he loved the results, and he never questioned Melvin again. And it's an interesting thing, and it's being an autodidact, uh, there's a certain freedom, or there's something liberating about it. You know, if you're sort of teaching yourself how to do everything, you haven't been to film school or art school, whatever your discipline is. And Orson Welles has talked about this in interviews. He gave an interview on the Dick Cavett show in the early 70s. Orson Welles, for those who don't know, was basically a wunderkind early on in his career. He made it Citizen Kane in his mid-20s, coming from a theater background. And he talked about it as well uh, on Dick Cavett's show in the early 70s, later in his career. He was basically saying that when you don't come from a, a certain school or, you know, like a, an ironclad tradition of filmmaking... You don't know what can't be done. So there's nothing hindering you. You don't have to be mindful of any limitations. There's a, there's a certain creative freedom that comes with learning as you go. And like I said, the, the results of, for, with this film especially were lovely. And like I said, Melvin wrote the music himself, as always. And Earth, Wind & Fire ended up performing the music. Earth, Wind & Fire uh, started out as a great funk band. Their biggest hits came later, you know, during the disco era, which I'm not really a fan of. But this was in 1971 when Earth, Wind & Fire were still basically an unknown group and when they still kept it funky. I was looking around and trying to find a group because I didn't have time to, to teach people to play as a group. I needed a group that had a habit of playing with themselves. And um, my secretary was sleeping with this one guy. Hmm? And she says, um, and they were all living in a little room um, in Hollywood, about 12 of them. And she says, you must, you must see these guys. And I went to see these guys, and it was Earth, Wind, and Fire. And um, so they had never done an album before. Um, and I wrote the music. And since I can't really read or write music, I, I hummed the thing, or I played all the, all, I taught them my musical method. And they, they took the method, and then they, they played the music as, as I would ask them to. And that became um, a huge hit. And later on, after the film came out, or around its release, Stax Records ended up putting out the soundtrack album. Uh, but the film uh, ran into some trouble on the distribution front. Because of how provocative it was, and because of the subject matter, the film initially only opened in two theaters, and I believed it opened in Detroit. And not just that, the film got an X rating from the Motion Picture Association, which ended up spawning the tagline, Rated X by an all-white jury. <laughs> um, under the present setup, if you don't um, submit the film to the Motion Picture Board Association... Um, you That's have the to take, MPAA. That's the MPAA. You have to take what is called a self-imposed X. Um, Jack Valeni, the president of MPAA, um, the Motion Picture Association, claims that uh, you don't have to take a self-imposed X, but um, all of the papers um, refuse to run an ad um, unless it has uh, um, a rating from the Motion Picture Association on it. Uh, that said, despite how limited distribution was at first, the film quickly got some buzz, and it got shown in more and more theaters as distributors started to pick up on its potential, and it not only grew into a national hit, it actually became the highest-grossing independent film ever. And that remained the case for many, many years. The major cities in, New in America had a large African-American population. And the movie theaters were closing 
because they had nothing relevant that they wanted to see. So I simply wrote a relevant movie, and that population, I, I probably made $8 million before three white people had even seen the fucking movie. <laughs> um, but then once everybody starts seeing it and start understanding what the, the relevance, then I became um, um, the, the other thing when it could not be ignored anymore. That's what happened. That said, despite how, this, how successful the film turned out to be, the reviews were a little more mixed. And the reception was a mixed bag, not just from white critics, but from black critics as well. A lot of scholars and activists and the like believe that the film kind of exploited negative black stereotypes. Some of them said it was a glorified skin flick and, you know, was purely superficial. Some others thought it was anti-white. Although that said, in an interview Melvin Van Peebles gave around the time the film came out, he said in very, very plain terms that the film wasn't anti-white. Is it anti-white? No, it's anti-injustice. That's not synonymous. Mm -hmm. no, I guess uh, even though uh, many people feel that it is. The theme of the film, just like the album, the, the book and everything else, is uh, you bled my mama, you bled my papa, but you won't bleed me. And not just that, Melvin Van Peebles was actually kind of disappointed in how sort of divisive or polarizing the reception was among black critics. Um, I'd be very surprised if uh, um, everybody agreed on anything. However, I think it's a very racist point of view for a person to say, well, um, I'm black and I don't agree with the film, therefore the film is in disagreement with black people. I think um, um, we're then falling into the same bag of the man, that is, uh, all black people think alike. Um, I think all black people do think alike by their oppression, only one way, that they do want the oppressor eliminated. After the acts of sex are finished, we do see Sweetback, the last time he resorts, uh, the next to the last time he resorts, he uses his, the tool, that, the only tool that he has at his tan at that time that he knows how to do, as a tool for his own liberation, no longer as a tool for gratification. Uh, interestingly enough, though, the film was uh, openly praised by Huey P. Newton, who was the co-founder of the Black Panthers, and uh, Melvin Van Peebles himself was actually an admirer of the Black Panthers, and he shared, I don't think it's, much of a stretch to say that he shared some of their beliefs and especially in in the early 70s in his early career as a director you hear melvin again talk about you know this recurring talk of revolution well um as i was pointing out um um niggas came to debate with me with guns i'll be very happy if and pleasantly surprised if they go to debate with guns um with the white major studios um uh, who've been fostering john wayne on them who makes no mistake about it who tells you where he's at as concerning the blood um but uh, he plays in the black community and never a word is said and there ain't no meat and tail the moderates um disguising under militants um in both parts of um, the uh, american uh, um, racist society have banded together the uh the um, white liberals and the um the black elitists have banded together to, um, to try and keep the film um, from the nitty-gritty mass of the people. Perhaps they realize that the nitty-gritty mass of the people who will make the revolution, they may not be able to make the revolution in um, the terms that will look um, too pretty in the, uh, in the history books of tomorrow. And another thing that's worth mentioning is that Melvin, in interviews repeatedly, you hear him describe himself as a political man. 
However, he didn't intend to make Sweetback a film that came off as sort of didactic or, you know, pontificating, because he thought that, that he would lose the audience if he did. And, true enough, the film was, wasn't just supported by black audiences. White and black people both went out to see the film, and like I said, it was, it was a national hit. So again, it, it transcended racial lines. And it's an important film, perhaps above all else, because with it, Melvin Van Peebles proved that black filmmakers can make their own films their way without being beholden to a studio. And secondly, this film is credited with spawning the black exploitation genre, which was basically at its peak during the early to mid-70s. And some of them were action films, some of them were crime films, you know, uh, there were comedies as well, and they were basically films with uh, mostly black casts, with, you know, strong and powerful lead characters. And keep in mind, like I said before, largely in Hollywood up until then, with a few exceptions like the Sidney Poitiers and the Harry Belafontes of the world, unless you were playing mammies, butlers, or some variation thereof, there were really, you know, opportunities for black actors and black filmmakers in general were very limited in Hollywood. And so the exploitation era changed all that. And not just that, studios saw the blueprint, essentially, that Melvin Van Peebles had laid out with Sweetback, took it and ran with it, not because they had suddenly become ultra-progressive overnight, but because exploitation films, and films like Sweetback, could basically be made for cheap, and because Sweetback proved that these kinds of films actually had a very far-reaching impact and, you know, could reach large audiences, black and white alike, the studios basically capitalized on this and uh, started bankrolling these films with mostly low budgets and knowing they would turn very, very big profits. And the term exploitation was actually coined as a pejorative initially. Junius Griffin, who was the uh, leader of the NAACP in Los Angeles, he initially coined the term. He's credited with coining it. But like I said, he coined it negatively because he believed that exploitation films uh, kind of perpetuated negative black stereotypes and the like. And in a lot of these films, you know, you see the characters are rebelling against the man, and a lot of them took place in the hood, and, you know, there are a lot of stories of pimps and drug dealers and sex workers, etc. And some of them hold up better than others. Some of them stand the test of time, some don't. However, that era of filmmaking did produce a lot of classics. You have Shaft, which was directed by Gordon Parks. This came out in 1971, another classic of exploitation film. You had Superfly as well, which came out the year after, which was actually directed by Gordon Parks Jr., his son. You had Foxy Brown, which starred Pam Greer, that came out in 1974. Dolomite, which we mentioned before, came out in 1975 with Rudy Ray Moore, directed by Derville Martin. Uh, we had The Mac, Black Caesar, uh, and you can even put Across 110th Street in there, another great film with Yafit Koto and Anthony Quinn and Anthony Franchosa. And again, this was another trend that basically began with Melvin and his film Sweetback. Uh, a lot of these films that came out of the exploitation era came with these sort of jazzy and funky scores, and a lot of them were done by very popular and beloved musicians. I mean, Isaac Hayes did the music for Shaft, Curtis Mayfield did the music for Superfly, a great score, I have that one on vinyl, it's banging. Marvin Gaye did Trouble Man, the song Trouble Man is especially wonderful. Uh, and Willie Hutch, who did the music for the Mac, and even across 110th Street, uh, Bobby Womack did it with uh, did the music with J.J. Johnson, who was a wonderful jazz trombonist. And so, say what you will about the black exploitation genre, it it allowed black filmmakers to tell black stories. When the film came out, only two theaters in the entire United States in the world would show the movie. Only two. I didn't say two cities, two theaters. But I had. I knew my audience, and 
that was so successful, the film, until, of course, then everyone else took the film hmm, afterwards. But that then allowed, then they, after that you had Shaft and you had the other things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What happened, of course, is my work is a little ferocious. They, they made it a little more acceptable to the mainstream and the music a little more acceptable to the mainstream, but still it had to carry a part of the message. And it gave a lot of actors their breakouts. I mean, Richard Roundtree comes to mind. This was his first starring role, Shaft was. And Pam Grier, like I mentioned before, she was in Foxy Brown, she was in Coffee, she was in Friday Foster with uh, Godfrey Cambridge. And she had a fantastic career. She was in Fort Apache the Bronx in the early 80s. She later did Jackie Brown with Quentin Tarantino in 1997, another lead role for her. She was in the Showtime series The L Word. Uh, had a great career. And at the same time... While Melvin Van Peebles and Gordon Parks and Gordon Parks Jr. are making these films, you also have Ossie Davis, who's a wonderful actor. He directed the film Cotton Comes to Harlem before Melvin made Sweetback. Cotton Comes to Harlem came out in 1970. It was based on a Chester Himes book, and Melvin Van Peebles actually knew Chester Himes. And uh, yet again, Cotton Comes to Harlem, another film starring Godfrey Cambridge, is him, Raymond St. Jock, Calvin Lockhart shows up, Red Fox, the great comic, is in this as well. And so Cotton Comes to Harlem is credited by some people as being the prototype or the first black exploitation film, but it doesn't really check off all those boxes necessarily because it's not it doesn't follow that sort of black exploitation trope of characters, you know, rebelling against the man. It's basically a crime comedy set in the hood. You know, not to belittle it, that's basically what it comes down to. Uh, but it's a great film and like I said it's a great cast as well. And so Sweetback is basically the film that set the mold for the black exploitation era. Although unfortunately Melvin Van Peebles uh, wouldn't direct a film for a studio again. I mean, Watermelon Man, like I said, was the first and only film he made for a studio. But even after the success of Sweetback, he was not invited back, let's say. <laughs> and what he did instead was he took his talents to the stage and started writing and producing musicals. And he ended up on Broadway. The first musical of his that ended up on Broadway was Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death. This came out in 1971. Uh, Melvin didn't direct this one. This was directed by Gilbert Moses. And the film is basically made up of a series of monologues told by a variety of different characters that basically depict life in the ghetto. And it soon made its way to Broadway. It was a very big success. Ran for over 300 performances. Got nominated for seven Tonys. And it's a great cast as well. Bill Duke is in it. Albert Hall. Beatrice Wind. She also got nominated for a Tony for this. And Garrett Morris, who was uh, part of the original cast of Saturday Night Live, was in a lot of great films. Was in Where's Papa? I believe he shows up in Cooley High as well. A really great actor who's done a ton of great work. And so, after Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death, Melvin's next musical that made it to Broadway was called Don't Play Us Cheap. And this came out in 1972. This one he did direct, in addition to writing and producing it. And uh, this was very successful as well. It ran for over 160 performances, got a, a couple Tony nominations for this one as well. And the same year Don't Play Us Cheap came out, Melvin adapted the musical into a film of the same name. And... The film is about an imp and a devil, or two devil bats, essentially, who are sent to Harlem in human form to try to break up a house party one Saturday night. And at the house party, we see a group of friends who don't have very much. But every Saturday, they get together. Each of them chips in a bottle. Nobody shows up empty-handed. And they sing, they dance, they share a meal, they shoot the breeze. Well, I guess we lucky to get that. Remember that old poem, Mom? In the beginning, so the Bible says, every second of every day was party time. Saturday night party time. 
in the beginning, so the Bible say, the Lord wanted man to have it nice. But Adam and Eve acted ugly. And ever since, poor folks had to pay the price. <laughs> and over the course of this film, we see their generosity, their warmth, their hospitality are so powerful that the first devil bat gives up on the mission entirely. He is so taken with their generosity and just how open these people are that he ends up joining the group himself. It's taking me so long. I could have broken two bodies by now. Well, everybody doing just fine, thank you. Why didn't you come in the first what place? What happened? What do you mean, what happened? They didn't get scared when I made a face. There's enough stuff to eat and drink here to feed an army, and the records don't break. There's more than four ways it's gonna cat. Let's break up this pie. Come on, think of something. Dave. You got an idea? I've decided I don't want to break the party. You're kidding. What do you mean you want to break up the party? Think what a glorious chance you have to be mean. Come on, snap out of it. Come on. It's no use. I just discovered a little while ago that I don't like being mean. And you, are you really sure? Ha! I'm sure. Well, maybe you're mistaken. And the other devil bat keeps failing to ruin the party until eventually he just breaks down and gives up and capitulates. And Melvin Van Peebles in several interviews said that this film was intended to be an homage to the spirit of black people. Because you see, I think that the African-American culture has a resiliency and a strength in it. And that's why I said, don't play us cheap. Don't let the smile fool you. The smile represents strength. And like I said, these are people who are so giving and so warm that even two people who've literally been dispatched from hell can't ruin their Saturday night, which is a night that they hold sacred. What's very important is the good spring from the roots of black warmth. The, these people had their game too uptight um, to let the devil um, come in on some humble and break up their good time, which is uh, one of the things I was trying to explain is the power that we have within our culture. And every character in the film, or in the musical rather, gets their own musical number. And they are lovely. They're soulful, they're bluesy, there's something sort of spiritual about them even. And it was interesting hearing Melvin say in interviews years after this came out just how, how exactly the seed was planted for this musical. I was living in Paris, but I'd gotten a summer job in New York making a documentary. And along with this job came this apartment, this rather posh neighborhood of the Lower East Side of um, Manhattan. And I was lounging out front of my apartment, and an old black lady came down the street. And um, it was very, very, very hot. And she said, boy, I said, yes, ma'am. She says, um, you got any water in there? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, I want some water, and I want to use the bathroom. Yes, ma'am, I said. So she came in and um, used the bathroom, and I gave her some water, and I had some lemonade, and I gave her some lemonade. And the woman thanked me very, very much for, for the kindness. And a few days later, she called me. She says, boy, you don't know nobody in this town. And I'm having a party for my niece. And I want you to come. You be there. Yes, ma'am, I said, of course, because that's the way I was raised. You always paid attention to what older folks told you. And I went to this party up in Harlem. When I got back to France later, I began to think, what would it be like 
if these wonderful, kind, open people were invaded by imps bent on destroying their party. And that was the genesis of Don't Play Us Cheap. And the cast is actually the exact same as the cast of the, the original Broadway production. So let's get into that a little bit. Esther Roll plays Miss Mabel, and the, the party, the Saturday night house party in Harlem, takes place in her home, her little apartment. And Esther Roll is absolutely wonderful in this, as is the rest of the cast. Uh, she's probably best known uh, for the sitcom Good Times. Whoa, whoa, everybody. Now, I've been back there working, and I've been hearing you all up here laughing and enjoying yourself. I got to have me a dance, too. <laughs> well, I'm trying to find out, Sister Mabel. Not too many, I hope, because I'm mighty hungry. Oh, I think one will do it. Put on a nice record there, Sugar Flow. <laughs> well, who's going to be the lucky fella? Well, since y'all so hungry, <laughs> and since I ain't got time for but one dance, uh -huh. I'm going to split it. Uh -huh. I'm going to dance the first half with Brett David there, uh -huh. and the second half with Brett Percy. Sounds fair enough to me. Uh, we have Retta Hughes, who actually played a small part in Sweetback. She plays Ernestine, Miss Maybell's niece, and on this particular Saturday night, the gang is getting together to celebrate her birthday. And we have Jay Van Leer, George McKern, Nate Barnett, Maybell King, Robert Dunn, Frank Carey, and Joshy Joe Armstead. Uh, they all play the guests in Miss Maybell's home on uh, this Saturday night in Harlem. Nate Barnett didn't pursue a career in acting. He was actually a basketball player and got drafted by uh, the Houston Rockets in the mid-70s. And Joshy Joe Armstead was uh, a really talented singer, and she worked with uh, Ike and Tina Turner, and she also worked with Ashford and Simpson. They did the original version of California Soul. My favorite version is the Marlena Shaw version, but I digress. And completing the cast, we have Joe Keyes Jr. and Avon Long as the two devil pets who show up trying to break up this, this house party. Joe Keyes Jr. plays Trinity. He gets first crack at the house party. And uh, he soon is taken by the gang's warmth and their generosity, like I said before. And he grows quite fond of Ernestine. And we have Avon Long, who plays Brother Dave. He's the second Devil Bat. He got nominated for a Tony for his performance in the original Broadway production. And uh, he was in some great films as well. He was in The Sting, the George Roy Hill film. We talked about that in one of our earlier episodes. He was in Harry and Tonto with Art Carney in 1974. And he later shows up in Trading Places as well with uh, Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd, and Jamie Lee Curtis in the early 80s. And he is wonderful in this. I can't even bother to sit down. My stomach is so delicate. Especially in the evening. I probably won't be able to eat a thing. Who are you kidding? Why don't you stop lying? Are you talking to me? Yes. Oh. You and your delicate stomach. Your stomach is no more delicate than a goat's. I don't see how you stay so skinny. Read like a pig. What did you say about my wife? I said she eats like six truck drivers. What did you say about my mother? Her stomach is no more delicate than anybody else's. And I said she eats like six truck drivers and six pigs. You want to do something about it? However, the film wasn't nearly as successful as the Broadway musical. It didn't get seen by very many people, unfortunately, but it is absolutely wonderful. And after this, uh, Melvin Van Peebles remained very active, but he didn't direct another feature film until the late 80s. However, several of his scripts were made into television films, and he also wrote the screenplay for the film Grease Lightning in 1977, which starred Richard Pryor as Wendell Scott, who was the first black NASCAR driver to win a race. And Melvin later went back to the theater as well. In 1982, he wrote and performed a play called Waltz of the Stork, and oddly, he ended up actually working as a trader on Wall Street in the 1980s. 
And according to Melvin Van Peebles, he says he did pretty well, and uh, how he came to work on Wall Street was actually a, it's a pretty interesting story that he told in an interview for the Red Bull Music Academy later in his life. How I went to work on Wall Street was I lost a bet, and the, the, what we call vigorous, meaning the, the, the cost of the bet, losing was I'd go to, because I was sitting with some friends once, and um, some very, very rich friends, and we were talking, and a guy said something, and I said, oh, that's, mm, I could do the numbers in my head. He said, and everybody said, you can do that? I said, yeah. And so they got the machine, you know, the, the computer out, and he said, shit, he's right. And one of my other friends, who's particularly Machiavellian, said, wow, huh? And he's a big mocker on Wall Street, and and he's a troublemaker too. So, being so big, he got me the job hmm, to be a trader on Wall Street. And he wouldn't come back to direct a film until 1989. That film was called Identity Crisis, and he made it with his son Mario. Mario uh, wrote the script and starred in the film. And father and son would continue to work together throughout the 1990s. In 1995, they uh, collaborated on the film Panther, which was a film about the Black Panthers. Uh, was written by Melvin. Melvin had initially intended to make the story into a novel, and after showing what he had written to Mario, it was Mario who had the idea to convert it into a screenplay, and that's how the film was born. And the the two of them worked together again on a film called Gang in Blue in 1996. In 1998, Melvin Van Peebles uh, made a documentary called Classified X, which details the history of black people and how they were portrayed in uh, American cinema in the 20th century. And he made some more films in the early 2000s as well. Never quite achieved the notoriety or the success of his earlier films, but he stayed busy, like I said. He made the film Bellyful in the year 2000, and in 2008 he made Confessions of an Ex-Doofus, Itchy-Footed Mother. And the last project he directed was in 2012 he made the music video for the song Lily Done the Zampuji Every Time I Pulled Her Coattail, which is actually a song from his first album, Brewer's Soul, which he had put out in uh, the late 60s. And even into his early 80s, he kept acting in films. He was he shows up in the film Peoples in 2013, and then he worked again with his son Mario on a film called Armed, which came out in 2018, and that was Melvin's last acting role. And ultimately, on September 21st, 2021, uh, Melvin Van Peebles died at his home in New York at the age of 89. And it was his son, Mario, that had first announced his death. And I believe shortly after Melvin's passing, he uh, took to social media. And he had explained that Melvin, of course, being in his late 80s, he had slowed down a little bit. He had had some health problems. I'm not quite sure what those health problems were. I don't know what the details are. But uh, he had been in the hospital. And Mario had said that he had brought his father home knowing that Melvin wouldn't want to stay in the hospital, especially if he didn't have long left. He would have much preferred to, you know, spend what time he had left at home. And so they made a decision to bring Melvin home, and he uh, he passed not long after that. And Melvin's daughter Megan had uh, actually passed away 15 years prior in 2006, but he was survived by his son Mario, his son Max, uh, his daughter Margaret, and his 11 grandkids. And Mario's in his 60s now, and he's had a, a great career himself, both as an actor and as a director. He directed New Jack City in 1991, he directed The Western Posse, and he directed Panther, like I said before, worked with his father on that. He also played Malcolm X in Ali, uh, the Michael Mann film in 2001, and he's great in it. And he also played his father in the film Badass in 2003, which is a film about the making of, uh, of Sweetback. And I watched an interview with Mario Van Peebles recently in preparing for the show, and 
in this interview, he talked about a, an interesting pattern or interesting trend in some of Melvin's work, in those early films especially. If you look at the story of A Three Day Pass, Watermelon Man, and Sweetback as well, you have these lead characters who aren't just wrestling with their parameters, the world they live in, oppression, bigotry, prejudice, and everything that goes with that. We also see them kind of wrestling with themselves. You have Turner in the story of A Three Day Pass, you know those couple of scenes where he's talking to himself in the mirror. I wonder if I'll get it. You'll get it. Yeah, you're pretty sure to get it. Not bad. Uncle Tom. Yeah, you, Uncle Tom. Handkerchief head. I'm due for promotion. Why not me? A lot of the other colored guys have been waiting longer than you for promotion. Somebody had to get promoted. Why not me? Why not you? Why are you? Because you are the captain's new good colored boy. You are the captain's Uncle Tom, baby. I'm not the captain's Uncle Tom. Well, anyway, he thinks you are his Uncle Tom. He trusts you. And you know what the captain means by trust. If he can't trust you, boss... I'll bust you or any other man I find I can't trust. And then you have Jeff Gerber in Watermelon Man, who, like I said, as soon as he turns into a black man, you know, his initial reaction is one of kind of self-loathing, like he initially wants to shed this, this new skin of his, until eventually he kind of learns to respect himself and love himself, as I mentioned before. And then, of course, you have Sweetback, who is quite literally fighting back against the man. And, as I mentioned before, we see him go from someone who is initially only interested in self-preservation and getting himself to safety, and who later comes to sort of give himself up and risk his own life for Moo to get to safety and rely on his community. And I want to talk about just Melvin's impact a little bit, if I may. It's interesting hearing Melvin talk in interviews. He never really fancied himself an artist. He certainly was one, and one of many, many talents, for sure. Uh, but like I said, his influence was very, very far-reaching, even if he never became a household name, really. First and foremost, you had Melvin, Ossie Davis, and Gordon Parks, who basically paved the way for black filmmakers, not just in Hollywood, but of course you had Melvin, who found great success as an independent filmmaker with, with Sweetback. Now, Melvin isn't the first ever independent filmmaker in America, period. I mean, we in previous episodes, we talked about Ida Lupino, who made her own films with her own production company, The Filmmakers, Inc., in the late 40s and early 50s. Uh, we've talked about John Cassavetes as well, who basically spent the vast majority of his career as an independent filmmaker. However, neither of those two achieved the success or the impact that Melvin did with Sweetback. I mean, like I said, it was a national hit. And certainly, you look at Melvin's work, Ossie Davis's work, Gordon Parks' work, it's these guys who basically opened the door for filmmakers like Spike Lee and John Singleton, who made Boys in the Hood. And not just that, even on the musical front, as a musician and as a songwriter, that sort of spoken word riffing that he used to do on his albums, uh, like I said, is considered a, a forebearer, a prototype of sorts for rapping. And if you look at the history of hip-hop, the general consensus is that hip-hop was created in 1973 when DJ Cool Herc threw a house party on Cedric Avenue in the Bronx. However, there are a lot of artists and musicians who 
contributed greatly for what would become rap and hip-hop music. I mean, you had James Brown, who who did a lot of riffing on, on a lot of his records. George Clinton did much of the same on those Parliament Funkadelic records in the 70s. And James Brown and, and Parliament Funkadelic are probably the two most sampled artists in hip-hop ever. I don't think it's even close. And Melvin Van Peebles was another one of those guys, both with the instrumentation and with the way he just sort of with the way he just sort of rapped over the music. And at that time, what was happening um, was there were the, what we call the, the Black Revolution was going on in America. But the music was not revolutionary. And it was still blues or just straight jazz, but none of it talked about what was really going on. And since I couldn't sing, I started doing music, however, myself. And this took off and this became hip hop and it became rap. And, and that's what happened. Um, and that's, that's the story, Jerry. And he also set a trend in just releasing his, his film soundtracks as albums, which was not really the norm at that time, oddly. And then again, when black exploitation films sort of emerged in the 1970s, again, that sort of became a staple of the era with all these sort of renowned and beloved musicians uh, lending their talents to these film scores. Again, we talked about Isaac Hayes and Marvin Gaye and Curtis Mayfield, like I said. And perhaps most importantly, if there's anything to be taken from his work, his legacy, and just his impact, Melvin Van Peebles was born in 1932. So, simply put, he's a man who grew up in a rotten system. Um, I, I'm from the south side of Chicago. The reason I'm not in jail with the, with the rest of my earlier gang is because I looked very young. And I was young, but I looked peculiarly young and puny. And when the cops would come around in my neighborhood, yeah. they would take your hands and they would feel. And if you didn't have blisters, it meant that you didn't have a job, because all you could have is a labor job, and they'd just take you to jail. Mm. And we used to call jail California. But because... I, I looked so young, I was, I was outside of that. They didn't take, take you to jail. But, but that can be an mm. extremely rageful thing. That can be an extremely rageful thing. And like James Baldwin, who we mentioned earlier, he moved to Europe because he could live there with some semblance of freedom, at least, you know, comparatively speaking. And he wouldn't have to deal with any sort of Hollywood gatekeepers, and he would have... It was a little easier to get his films made in Europe. But most importantly, he was a man who knew what oppression looked like. And then he came back to the U.S., and he did everything his own way, and without being beholden to anyone, which I think is the dream for <laughs> just about every artist. And not even a broken system could get in the way of him realizing his artistic vision and getting his message across. What made you decide to become a director? Nothing. I never did decide to become a director. Uh, I mean, that's very flattering and nice. I... I I never decided to become a director. I decided that um, to show folks, especially minorities, like I saw them, not like they kept being shuffling around in cinema. And I know it's kind of a cliche, but, you know, the expression goes, be the change you want to see in the world. And that's what Melvin and Ossie Davis and Gordon Parks did. 
And Gordon Parks, by the way, was an, like Melvin, was another man of many talents. He was a he was a composer, he was a writer, and he worked as a photographer for Life magazine. Another multi-talented artist and very, very impactful as well. And so Melvin was one of this sort of triumvirate of filmmakers who is basically responsible for breaking the color barrier, not just in Hollywood, but also just for independent filmmakers as well. That is all I got on Melvin Van Peebles. I hope that I did him and his legacy justice, or at least... Or I hope that I've at least sort of piqued your interest, and I hope that you'll uh, look into his work and uh, what he left behind, because uh, his work is definitely worth revisiting and celebrating, and I believe it still holds up. And like I said, if there's any uh, any place that you can start with Melvin, I mean, those four films that we talked about, I think, are appointment viewing. The Story of a Three-Day Pass, Watermelon Man, I think is still a great satire. It's really funny. The Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. And don't play as cheap as well. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful musical. And before I leave you, thank you again for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for supporting the show. Uh, you can find us, like I said, as per usual, on the Spotify, the Apple Podcasts, the Google Podcasts, iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, whatever your pleasure is. You know what to do. You know how to find us. Please also follow us on the Instagram at Podcast for updates on uh, what we have coming up and when new episodes are going to come out. Like I said... Uh, the plan is to release one episode on the first Thursday of every month. And also, if you would like to get in touch with me, uh, you can reach us by DMs via the Instagram. Like I said, Close Set Podcast is the handle. And you can also email the show at closedsetpod at gmail.com. That is closedsetpod at gmail.com. Anything you've got, questions, feedback, comments, constructive criticisms, if there are any directors that you would like to see us cover on the show at some point, feel free. All of that good stuff is welcome. And uh, like I said, don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, leave ratings or reviews. Every little bit helps. I'm trying to get some more some more eyes on the show and uh, sort of grow our audience little by little. Thank you again for everything. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope that you will look into Melvin's work. And until next time, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Do you feel that there will be any benefit to the black community? as a result of the controversy about Sweetback? Oh, man, no doubt. I mean, it's already had uh, an enormous, um, very positive uh, um, thing. Even their disagreeing with me um, has forced them into a certain awareness of uh, the black community. They, we have been exploited. If Sweetback is an exploited film, as some people seem to think it is, um, and this can certainly not be considered the first of an exploited film, but uh, the niggas have never had enough courage um, to come down before, if they can only have their courage because um, I'm a black man and they don't feel that that massa image daring them not to come down on a white man. You know, as I said, um, cats would come to discuss um, um, at meetings for people who agreed with me with rifles. Um, you can't get them to get a rifle and go down on Fifth Avenue and talk to none of them white folks that way. Now, if this rubs off, and they do, God bless it. If, uh, if that has to be the, uh, the unpleasant personal, um, a sacrifice, um, well, you know, Christ was nothing but a carbon in his own hometown anyhow.